very familiar uh, opening to chapter 3 that says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look, um, a lot of commentaries go through word by word, and it's worth your time to see uh, you know, the definitions of certain words uh, that are here, but you can you can just read that list and know, yeah, this is the time I'm living in. The, the, these are the days of what is, is going on. You know, the, the affections spoken of. Um, one of the things that is pointed out is the fact that, you know, what should be natural attentions and natural affections, particularly of men for women, not there. Parents for children, not there. You know, respect of authorities, not there. I mean, you know, how wise do you have to be to recognize that abolishing police forces is an absurd idea? You know, no law enforcement? Are, are you crazy? Who would want to live in such a society? You know, um, that there were moments in history where there was such powerful revival that in Wales and other locations geographically and in history, people followed what we would say is the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself so closely that there were no laws being broken and no need for law enforcement. Law enforcement officers in Wales during the Welsh revival contacted their municipal authorities and said, you know, should we disband? No one's breaking laws. At all. We're law enforcement officers, and we don't have anything to enforce. And because they were paid servants of the community, after looking at what was going on in their communities, everyone worshiping Jesus Christ, they said, form singing quartets and go to churches and lead people in singing. Because you're there as paid servants of your community, so serve your community and what your community is doing. You know, if it comes down to disbanding law enforcement for a reason such as that, you kind of go, okay, that makes sense, you know. Nothing for these poor guys to do. But 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 enough support financially that, uh, you know, we're paying them, so do what we're doing. Worship Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good idea. But right now, you know, pandemonium and in everything that we just saw described in those first few verses is going on and people are like yeah and let's just get rid of the police that makes sense it's absurd to consider what's going on in our culture all of that to say paul is saying you'll know you're in the last days when these things are going on now keep in mind that our lord and the apostles and paul uh, told us that in their days they were living in the last days. So we're in the final seconds, you know, however you want to measure that. We're in the final hours of the final days. We, we shouldn't, uh, you know, be deceived into thinking that, 
oh, there's time. There's time to fool around. There's time to not worry. There's time to just pursue the things I want to pursue. It needs to be that we understand how treacherous the time is. Now, this, this statement that he wraps that up with of how men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Um, you know, the Lord designed us actually to enjoy things. So there isn't, you know, in that statement, something wrong with enjoying enjoyable things. It's the concept that the culture as a whole has stopped loving and pursuing God in replacing God with pleasures. They are pursuant of the things that are pleasant rather than things of God. And that's a lot of, you know, people's problems, even within the church. Uh, this next statement in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power, you know, and from such people turn away. Literally the idea of run away, stay away, don't have anything to do with them. The church, uh, you know, right now this whole woke culture that we're you know seeing around us you know they treat christianity like it's a popularity contest you know oh you know your church is you know old school fire and brimstone you know our our church is essentially you know a christian starbucks you know we got really cool stuff going on at our church great you probably are attracting a crowd you probably do have the biggest church in town. Seriously. Um, how unfortunate that people aren't being challenged with the things they need to be in order to get right. You hear Jesus Christ making statements about when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know? The, the idea is, you know, rhetorically almost the answer is mm, probably not. That makes me worried about me makes me concerned about what's going on around us in the church. Uh, you know, compare what the church was going through at this time and look at what the church is, you know, is the church suffering today? Uh, even, even in the arguments that, you know, people are having right now about, oh, you know, coronavirus and they're restricting, uh, you know, our gathering together. Uh, that's like the worst we've suffered in, you know, hundreds of years as Christians. Basically, the whole time we've been a nation, things have been really lax. And uh, the pursuit of pleasure rather than the pursuit of God. You know, some of the greatest teachers in American history during their lifetime were incredibly unpopular. They didn't have big churches. They, they were men who wrote some of the deepest things imaginable, and today they're honored and revered. At the time, their culture and their society wasn't listening to them much. You have to go back and find the ones that have true meaning. You know, Leonard Ravenhill. And, uh, you know, consider what, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of some other. C.S. Lewis uh, has written. Think of uh, the writings of. Schaefer, uh, you know, at the time, non-dramatically popular, uh, confronting 
Christianity for its comfort and its ease. I think of I think of how confrontational and uh, how controversial the likes of Keith Green, uh, you know, as a musician who, you know, was prophetic in some senses. Uh, you know, for the entertainment value, people liked him, but when he showed up at Christian universities and called the student body to repent publicly. As the student body began to repent in the microphone, you know, walking up to the stage and confessing their sin and trying to separate themselves from their worldliness and their sinfulness, the, you know, uh, dean and the management of the university shutting the PA system off so that they could no longer be open and honest in that way. Historically, the church, uh, when it gets into this place where it pursues pleasure rather than God, then it's the demise of the church. It's the death of the church. We need to be very careful about how we pursue pleasures from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. You shouldn't think of that as just being only women who are gullible and who are led away by these false teachers. The idea is the effeminate weak. It's a confrontational slap in the face that, you know, like man up, whether you're a guy or a gal. If, if this is the mindset right here, of pursuing pleasures within the church, then you need to be concerned about whether you're strong enough to serve the Lord, whether whether you're doing the things that are right and, and uh, you know sacrificing yourself in pursuit of Christ. Historically, uh, those who have lived as true Christians always paid the price. It isn't. It isn't an easy thing to ever be a follower of Jesus. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So all of these people who are actually of a worldly mindset, who are pursuant of pleasure rather than pursuant of God, they have a form of godliness, deny its power. The End of the thing is they're they're always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's interesting to me to find people within the church, within Christianity, who are, you know, right up to date on all the latest, uh, you know, podcasts and devotionals and publications and concerts, always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Backing up to what he's saying about form of godliness denying its power. What is the power of the gospel? It is to free us from sin. That, that's, what the gospel, that's the power of the gospel. It, denying its power. They have all of this other stuff in their life, and yet they continue on in their worldly and in their earthly behaviors. It's it's a you know it's one of those things that you really need to test 
you've probably heard the term, the term touchstone, um, touchstone pictures. Um, so, uh, there are stones literally of mineral content <coughs> that change color when they come in contact with precious metal. The chemical compound is such <coughs> that when they press it up against it, you look quickly and you can see if it's changing color. And the faster it changes, then the more that it has precious metal within it. That's what touchstone comes from is the idea of you can gauge the purity and the value of something by looking at it. Today, they use understanding the chemical properties and principles of that. They develop electronic instruments, and you take your ring to a jeweler, and they put it on the stone and go, no, cubic zirconia, you know what I'm saying? Diamond. That's, that's the real deal right there. Put it on precious metal, gold. It registers. That, that you know testing of the value of the thing was done in ancient times through pressure and heat. Is it a diamond? I don't know. Let's put it underneath this. Crash! No, it busted into a million pieces. That's that's not a diamond. It's fake. You know, is this actually gold? Well, let's put it inside this crucible and melt it. Crank the fire up. You know, if it's false... It's fake metals, it just burns up, and uh, no, you have garbage. You know, would you like it back? You know, <laughs> it's it's ruined. There, there was nothing of value of it to begin with. You know, I bring that into this because we have these soft ways of determining something's value today, whereas back in the day, it was put it under severe strain, put it under fire, put it under something intense and see the real metal, the real value of the object. Uh, you know, this, this uh, statement that's here about those that have this you know, form of godliness, you, you're going to have to try them. You're going to have to see that under, you know, fire. You're going to have to see that in an intensity in order to realize whether something is genuine or not. Think about what Paul is using that term about the sincerity. And we've we've talked about how that, you know, is you know meaning without wax. The, the need to know of your own value, your own substance, your own worth. Always learning, never able to know, come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the truth. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was, meaning Janus, or however you want to pronounce Janus and Jambres. Two, ma two magicians illusionists that resisted Moses. You'll remember that Moses comes and they go through their series of demonstrations and they throw down their snake and, you know, Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. It's interesting. Uh, Dennis and Sandy Zek are uh, believers. They're Christians and uh, they are 
very skilled illusionists. We had them here a number of years ago now, and uh, they have studied <clears throat> the magicians of old, the illusionists, and um, that whole industry is an industry of its money all the way through. And uh, you pay to um, learn. So learning a certain trick is a certain amount of money. Actually purchasing the trick is a much larger sum of money. They have props and designs and all the things they do. Um, a, a, a staff turning into a snake was uh, an ancient trick that was performed by the magicians and the illusionists and the soothsayers and sorcerers of the day. And they had a flammable paper that they wrapped a real snake in very tightly. And because the snake was immobilized, it would sort of fall asleep, hypnotized because it's restricted and cannot move, and ignite the paper, and it bursts into a cloud of flame and smoke. And of course, not only the fire burning away around this serpent, but also the heat on a reptile is going to wake that thing right up. You will have a writhing snake in your hand. So they designed this method and this prop in such a way so that you very often had the, the actual head of the serpent sticking out of the staff, and it's just this wrapped paper, and when they would ignite it, burst into flames, they would hold on the head, and now you have this writhing snake in your hand, cloud of smoke and fire. Uh, the research regarding this led Dennis and Sandy to discover that the ancient text in the Hebrew referring to when Janus and Jambres changed their staff into a serpent that uh, it described the serpent as being a serpent of smoke and fire in a staff. So you can buy this trick today and perform it, and it seemingly, if you track it back, was actually the same thing. Anyway, the point is Moses puts the rod down. It becomes a serpent. They do their trick. Their rod turns into a serpent also, but now Moses' rod eats both of their snakes, and then when he picks it up, it turns back into a rod, okay? <clears throat> they didn't ever have the ability to change their serpent rod back into a rod. They could change their rod into a serpent, but not back, and they definitely couldn't change their walking staff into a serpent and make it eat two other snakes and then turn back into a staff. Point is, Moses' miraculous occasion was the power of God being demonstrated. And it's so interesting that we as Christians should be able to track with 
Jesus Christ, our shepherd, guide us with his rod and his staff, right? Became a serpent on the cross, the symbol of Moses lifting the serpent up, right? He consumed our sin in the process, right? Eat yours and mine and become the shepherd's staff again to guide us and lead us. The symbolism is contained in the scripture. Point is, there's all kinds of different magic and tricks and illusions. You know, 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns us that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to come with wonders and signs that are lying wonders. They're going to be deception. They're going to be untrue. It's going to be sleight of hand. It may be the most powerful sleight of hand we've ever seen. We were just talking a group of us the other night about this system. I don't know if it's been built or not, but they have designed a satellite system that drops with pinpoint accuracy metal rods from orbit. So steel rod dropping straight down through, or some of them they say are designed with even stronger metals than steel, dropping down through the atmosphere, so it's going to accelerate to the point of breaking the sound barrier many times over and striking the target with pinpoint accuracy. The devastation of the blow when it hits the ground, they're, in certain cases, based on the size of the rods they're dropping, they're measuring in megatons, like as in nuclear explosions. Don't know if it's been built, don't know if it's in orbit, don't know if it's entirely real or just theoretical. I read again in the scripture that when the Antichrist comes, he'll be able to even call fire down from heaven and kill people upon command. Is it going to be something like that? You know, something that that is nothing more than the technologies of mankind, but he has it at his command and his disposal, and it appears to us to be God-like power? Here are people within the church that are learning and learning and learning, and they don't have any real power. It's illusion and delusion. Their mind is not submitted to the Lord, and they lead people astray, and they corrupt minds in the process. You know, you're seeing, you know, ministers on stage slapping people in the forehead. Knocking them down. We're all supposed to go, wow. Big deal. You know, I I, want to see you take someone and disciple them to the point where they leave their sin and live a different life. Then now I'll stand there with you and go, wow. You know, you actually changed another human being to be obedient to Jesus Christ. You know, waving your sport jacket over you know, a herd of your obedient followers and they all fall down on cue, that is not impressive at all. It doesn't impress me in the slightest. You show me someone that can deliver a human being from their, you know, by nature sinfulness, and and now you're talking about the power of God, right? The power of God over death, sure. But again, we'll go back to the issue is the 
the power of death comes from the power of sin. If, if you can disciple someone and lead them to the point where they no longer live a life of sin, that's, that's remarkable. That, now you're talking about the power of God. The, the life transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Janice and Jambres resisted Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. I, I was, uh, you know, really disturbed a number of years ago when uh, Paul Crouch, the founder of uh, Trinity Broadcast Network, uh, it was discovered that he had had a homosexual relationship with uh, one of the men that had worked with him in ministry. And uh, not only did he have that relationship, but he paid, the, the, the ministry had paid that man $180,000 and signed a non-disclosure agreement with him. He was going to publish a book and expose uh, Paul Crouch uh, for all of this nonsense and uh, pay him a large sum of money, and now he's got to keep his mouth shut. Well, in uh, 2006, uh, Paul Crouch actually violated uh, the non-disclosure agreement. The man had kept his mouth shut, hadn't said anything. Uh, you know, this is Paul Crouch who's, you know, performing all these miracles and doing all of this slain in the spirit and, you know, Trinity broadcast type stuff. And, uh, you know, he violates the non-disclosure agreement. So the man that he'd had the affair with <clears throat> contacts his lawyer and says, go ahead and publish the book. You know, Paul Crouch just spoke in public about me and all of those circumstances. So he violated the non-disclosure. So we're freed from the non-disclosure agreement. So now we can publish the book. And Trinity Broadcast freaks out and gathers up their lawyers and goes back to the negotiating table and sits down and renegotiates a new non-disclosure agreement. And they pay him a second sum of money. Keep his mouth shut. <clears throat> you know, so... Uh, they will pro uh, progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as Janice and Jambres was. The, their fake tricks were exposed for the whole world to see. Verse 10, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. And, you know, he was stoned to death there, dragged outside the city and thrown into the trash heap. You know, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me, including the fact that he was stoned to death. And we shouldn't, again, make the mistake of thinking that Paul got pelted in the head with rocks until you know, he was knocked out. That, that was the beginning of the process. Grab whatever rock is available and aim for the face. And wind that rock as hard as you can. And when it connects and stuns him, grab a bigger rock. And keep increasing the size of the rocks until they go to the ground. And when you've stunned them to the ground, two or three people work together and grab the biggest rock that they can lift and drag that over to where you're lying on the ground and 
with one, two, three, heave it up in the air until it smashes your head flat or smashes your chest cavity flat. Being stoned to death, you know, we've seen it depicted in modern scenarios. When the mob went crazy, that was the process. They killed Paul. He later talks about how he knew a man who died and went to heaven, saw such things that he couldn't even utter. And in that discussion, he reveals that it was himself. Probably that occasion where he was stoned to death in Lystra, where they attacked him and killed him. God delivered him from that. Why? Because it's appointed unto man once to die. And that was not Paul's appointment. Every single one of us has an appointment. He's saying this to Timothy to remind him that, look, you don't have to be afraid of whatever treacherous things might come your way, and you don't have to be afraid of the fact that now I'm in the Mamertine prison. You know, People are acting like, oh, Paul was on a good run, but... He must have failed somewhere along the way because the Romans caught him and put him in prison. Very often, that's the way people act. When they see that a person has met their end, met their judgment, met their demise, and they act like, oh, they, they were doing well. But now, look, God's not blessing them anymore. You know, they end up sick. They end up suffering. And, you know, the common thought is if they were truly following and serving the Lord, they wouldn't be experiencing these things. Here, he's reminding Timothy to not be intimidated by these difficulties he's going through. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's rare that you find that on, you know, a packet of Bible promises. Right. Usually something very positive. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You'll read that one a lot. Things like that. You don't often read that if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to suffer. People, you know, they they think the exact... If you're suffering... Then, then you must be blowing it. You must be in the wrong. You know, Trinity Broadcast, uh, Paul Crouch, that whole crowd of, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity movement teachers teach that openly. You know, Benny Hinn, what a shame, early 90s, put his wife in hiding as she fought for her life with cancer. You know, here he is, the healer. You know, Benny Hinn's healing evangelistic ministries, and he can't heal his own wife. I, I mean, Paul healed many people and yet suffered a physical malady that he prayed three times the Lord would deliver him from, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, if you just preach that balanced approach of, Yes, the Lord used me and healed people through me. But at the same time, the balance of the issue is we're all going to die someday. You don't get to live forever. It is that we are going to suffer. This balance of teaching, if you're going to live 
a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to have difficulties. Verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. They are deceiving people and they themselves are deceived. The scripture tells us that sin is deceptive. That if we engage in it, if we're involved in it, it will deceive you. Um, I don't know how many times I have had conversations with people where, in particular, adultery, they have convinced themselves that, in their case, it's okay. Everybody else, right, but in my case, God has a special understanding. It's strange you know, to, to hear grown adults saying, God has revealed to me that I'm not supposed to be with this person that I'm married to, that this new person is the one he actually wanted me with, that I made the mistake and married this person. And now God, it's almost like they're saying, and, and God has not only given me permission, but God's actually asking me to leave this person in order to be with that person. You know, I, I uh, uh, had a rather boisterous discussion with a man here in this building one night who is telling me and the elders of this church that uh, God has told him that it's a sin for him to be married to the woman he's currently married to and that he needs to leave her in order that he can go and, and marry another woman. You know, and, and I'm losing my mind on this guy because he's got four daughters, two of them from a previous marriage, two from the one he's currently in, and now regardless of whatever nonsense is going on in his head, right, he's going to forever scar these four young women with the concept that God wanted your dad to divorce your mom in order to go be with another woman. How, how crazy is that? How contradictory to God's word is that? You know, when, when we're reading here that these people, these deceivers, are, are going to continue to deceive other people and going to continue being deceived themselves. It's not as though it's just a constant chain of people deceiving one another. Very often we deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, this is fine. The Lord's going to you know, make a special rule for me. It's, it's off limits. It's forbidden for everybody else in the program. But for me, it's going to be perfectly fine. It's absolutely outrageous that uh, people think along those lines, that they, they have that level of deception and promote it in the church. Uh, you know, publish books and teach other people this garbage. Lead people astray continuously. Yes. Deception grows. Verse 14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Who's... Who has he learned them from? He's learned them you know, from the Holy Spirit. He's learned them uh, from uh, Paul, who's been teaching him these things very accurately. Uh, I think it's a shame 
when people lose sight of particularly the word of God. You can verify, you know, what uh, someone is saying, whether it be the truth, whether the teaching is correct, when you examine the word of God carefully. And, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, a church, a pastor, a teacher, a movement has come off the rails and, and gone down a road that they should not be on, you isolate yourself in prayer with the word of God, the Holy Spirit leading you, and you will discover where those things are incorrect. If you will trust what the word of God has to say, Paul is reminding him, remember, you know, he isn't saying to him, remember the things that were my doctrine and that I taught you and me, Paul, I, you know, all about the church of Paul. It isn't about that. It's about the word of God combined with the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us. If we are people who are pursuant of the Lord and what it is he has to say, he will show us these things from his word. He's drawing his attention back to what is the truth. There's, you know, I've worked on many different construction projects over the years, some of them very precise, others, you know, throw up the rough cut shed to throw a bunch of wood in, sort of building projects. And, um, man, when we were building towers for engineers, those guys are right there. I think I've described recently, uh, we constructed uh, this tower for the main forestry service and uh, the, the giant hole, huge concrete base in the bottom of it. And the engineers are there and they'll only let us put a foot of gravel in. It has to be gravel according to their standard. Put one foot in and run the compactor over the whole thing. And they come in with this device and pound a rod down in the ground and then take density measurements and if it's not compacted enough they'll pull that out of the ground and say compact some more and you know then drive the rod back in the ground and say there now you can put another foot on it 20 feet deep we could fill this back fill this hole every foot had to be compacted that way you know other people are like yeah throw a cinder block underneath it and jack it up you know <clears throat> precise measurements when somebody's standing around going it looks straight to me then everybody else goes, yeah, fine. No big deal. Until you're trying to build something incredibly strong and very precise. The engineers aren't going to stand around and go, that's fine. Can't see it from my house. You know, whole 280-foot towers, two degrees off pitch, but who cares? You're going to care over time. Your opinion of what's right and what's wrong isn't what we're asking. You know, our opinion about marriage, our opinion about, as weird as it is to say, male and female, you know, our opinion about all of these moral issues don't get answered by your opinion or my opinion. They get answered by examining the one who created all things. He, he is the one who created man and woman, so he gets to define man and woman. He is the one who created marriage, so he is the one who gets to define marriage. Family, all of these things 
defined by the one who created them. When he's you know here saying, look, the culture you're living in is just going to explode. It's, it's going to be, you know, treacherous, perilous times. You know, people are going to be disobedient, blasphemous, unthankful, unholy, tr- you know, treacherous on, on every level. He, he's then pointing to Timothy by saying, essentially, not you. You're going to measure according to the things that I taught you to measure by. You're going to, uh, you know, not be like these imposters who learn and learn and learn and never come to truth. I mean, isn't that a, a central problem in our culture worldwide? Philosophy. You know, there is no truth. What's truth to you might not be truth to somebody else. You know, relevance. It all depends on what the circumstances are. No, it really doesn't. God is the one who gets to define all of these things. And if we follow after these false teachers, we follow after these false premise, in the end, everyone's lost. The deception permeates everything. No one is aware of anything that they need to adhere to. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you've learned them. And then he talks about his childhood that from your childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You notice that (coughs) it's not just faith that saves you. It's faith in Christ Jesus. You know, you you hear certain people, you know, I, I mock it all the time, but that idea of, you know, I'm a very soulish person. I'm a very spiritual person. You know, they, they have these things, and I I don't mean to mock it so frequently, but I find that every time I hear that, when I ask the questions about what do you mean by that, what I come down to is that they're, they're talking about they're emotional. Usually they mean that they're, very easily stirred with affection and positive emotions. Because if you go the other direction of they're an angry person who flies off the handle and deals with things with harshness, then they go, well, you're not, you're not soulish. You're, you're not spiritual. But, but if, you watch the Hallmark Channel and just melt. Well, oh, you know, you're, you're a deeply spiritual person. It's crazy, the definitions that people come up with. Yeah, and when you say, well, what is the spirit? How do you talk about these things? Um, sometimes, rarely, they might bring into, well, things that are, you know, about the afterlife or, or things that might pertain to, you know, ghosts or spirits or things along that line, but rarely do they even get into the discussion of that which is supernatural. They're they're almost always talking about that which is defined as nothing more than emotional. Here, he's, he's defining for Timothy and anyone who would learn from Christianity that what you need to learn from is the gospel you were brought into, which began in your youth, which was founded in the scripture 
that teaches faith in Jesus Christ. That is that which is spiritual. Nothing else. Nothing else is spiritual. I mean, examine the religions of the world. Right? Sometimes they talk about things that are of a moral consequence. But that's pretty rare. Usually they're talking about that which is based in thought and emotion and experientialism. Here, Paul defines the, the spiritual things that should be adhered to in contrast to those that say they have a form of godliness but they deny the power of, they study and study but they never come to the knowledge of the truth, they lead people astray, they deceive people, they're continuously deceived. In contrast, you, Timothy, Study the faith that you were raised in, which is based in the word of God, which teaches you of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he attaches right in that discussion the fact that it will lead him to salvation. What a remarkable thought, you know, that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Oprah Winfrey often is talking about how spiritual she is and how she loves to talk about spiritual things. <clears throat> she, she was raised in Baptist churches, according to her own confession. She makes the statement that she left the Baptist faith and has not cared for she i think she used stronger words than that but i'm definitely accurate saying that she's she did not care for christianity uh, from her youth on because she read and she doesn't even remember where but she read in the scripture that god is jealous and she knew that according to her definition she knew that to be sinful and therefore she didn't like the god of the bible because jealousy was sinful so she wanted nothing to do with god hey listen <clears throat> I've been married uh, to Lori for 31 years, and she is the love of my life. And if I see any man hitting on her, I'm going to have a fit of jealousy like you cannot imagine. And it will be holy, and it will be righteous, and it will be correct, and it will be good. <laughs> I will react overwhelmingly. And, and everyone would agree that's good, right, and proper. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying about how he is jealous for us. He is a jealous God. For those that are his children, those that are part of the church, those that are his bride, he is jealous for them. Somebody comes along, what did Jesus say? Anyone tries to cause one of his little ones, to stumble into sin, away from faith, it would be better for them that a millstone be hung around their neck than they be thrown into the depths of the sea. Jesus Christ created the ocean. He knows that the atmospheric pressure doubles every 33 feet that you go down. He knows that if he ties a millstone around your neck, and he throws you over the side of the boat. And keep in mind, the millstone that he's referring to is what they often refer to as the donkey stone. Right? That thing was, at a minimum, 200 pounds. 
Okay, you had what they referred to as a table stone, which was a stone with a spindle in the middle that sat on top of another, and you would put your grain in there and put the stone on the top, and you would turn it by hand and grind whatever flour you wanted in the moment. But if you wanted to buy commercial-grade flour from someone in town who was grinding wheat, there was a donkey that was turning that stone. Massive thing. Huge, giant, sometimes ox. Sometimes the thing weighed half a ton. You know, a thousand pounds. Jesus is saying, you cause one of my children to stumble into sin, to fall out of the faith through your temptation. It'd be better for you that a millstone be tied around your neck. You'd be thrown into the depths of the sea. He knows, having created the ocean, that as you plummet towards the ocean floor, the atmospheric pressure is going to increase so rapidly that you're going to be crushed before you ever drown to death. That, that's the passion of Christ for those that are his. You mess with his kids, and that's the level of freakout you're going to get from God. Do not cause someone who believes in me to stop believing in me, to stumble into sin, to leave the faith. That, that's, that's jealousy. And, and, and the scripture calls it righteous, that he behaved that way. I appreciate the fact that there's that much fire behind my heavenly father and his level of desiring to protect me. That as his child, he, he, is, he will get that wound up over getting between me and sin, between me and anyone who would try to teach me falsely, anyone who would lead me away from the faith. That's, that's God. I can identify. I hope you can identify with that. If you can't identify that, then I, I wonder if you have kids. If you've got kids, man, uh, you better have a fire in your belly to protect them at all costs, that, that nothing would ever mess with your kids. I've seen like totally well-behaved women that you never would think anything fiery would come out of them and they even think somebody's messing with their kid and that you meet a whole new person they are wound that's from god here right he's making this stark contrast in the last days you guys were living in the days you've got to catch on fire with what paul is saying to timothy right here about us this is the hour he's describing. Boy, you're going to get in the last days. They're going to be perilous times. Perilous times. You know, 1950, public schools in America. You know what the number one problem in public schools was in 1950? Anybody? Chewing gum. Chewing gum. And the biggest problem with chewing gum was it was disobedience because it wasn't allowed in school. Okay, Couldn't chew gum in school. And honestly, their problem with it didn't have to do with the fact that, you know, maybe they considered it vulgar at the time or, you know, several different ways to look at it. It was the fact that the kids were irresponsible with it, would stick it on the bottom of the desk. The janitor's got to scrape it off. They'd leave it on the floor in the hallway and people would track it around. That was the single biggest problem in public schools, 1950. 1950. 
It hasn't been that long, right? What's the biggest problem in school right now? Mass shootings. You know, that's, that's pretty serious. We're living in the perilous times. We're living in the hour that Paul is describing. And he is saying in this passage, look. What's going to be taught in the church, what's going to be believed by those who profess to be believers is going to be a load of garbage. False teachers and deceivers and deception. And, yeah, they're, going to be, they're going to talk about God. They're going to deny the power of God. They're going to be just a load of junk. This, this is the hour. This is where we're living right now. This, this is the time. We need to really grab a hold. In contrast... Speaking of that Holy Scripture, Timothy's raised in, he puts in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Dakota and I were talking the other night about some of the other ancient books that people will sometimes heap on and say, oh, you really ought to read the book of Enoch. Boy, you really need to study the book of Maccabees, right? Read those things. But they're not scripture, right? Right here, he just gave us the definition. Because scripture is going to be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, okay? So... If you went to school and had to proofread, or if you had to produce a proof, right? It's not your final paper, it's a proof, right? Reproof is the idea of that's what you think, that's what you said, that's what you taught. Well, let's get the word of God out and reproof. Right? There's a, a rebuke in it, there's a verbal addressing. In that word, but it's the idea of the scripture has authority to correct. You, you know, you, you formulated an idea, formulated a, a thought about God, formulated a belief system. The scripture might come along and go, mm, nope, you're completely wrong. <laughs> Whatever you thought, that is incorrect. The scripture has authority to reproof. So if you're reading one of those other books and it doesn't have profitable doctrine doesn't have good reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness rightness is how that should be thought of right with god right with man now you know the definition of righteousness right righteousness does not equal arrogance right that self-righteousness that that's the hypocrisy we would talk about Okay, self-righteous. That means you're gauging yourself by yourself, through yourself, of yourself. You don't, you don't have any outside measurement. Nobody come along and slap the word out God up against you and go, nope, you're off the mark. You're not on the level. You're, you're out of shape. You know, correct your construction. This, the word of God is going to do these things, that the man of God may be complete. Certain passages translate that perfect. It's not, it's not the sense of without flaw. It's, it's the sense of, okay, we don't need to add anything else to that. Dialed in. 
That's the way we should be. That's what the Word of God is going to do. This is, this is one of the problems when you read the Apocrypha, and, oh, here's the book of Enoch, and, oh, interesting, weird stuff, never heard that before, right? It's not correcting you, training you, teaching you, completing you. There are things that are you know, recorded there that you can go, I don't know if that's accurate, and some of it is not accurate. These 66 books, by the time John, the oldest living Apostle passed away. They had already bound these 66 books together as one Bible and said, that's what you need to read right there. We often refer to it as the canonized Bible. You shouldn't misunderstand that to mean like a group of guys got together and they took a vote. And when they were done, they officially canonized the Bible. You know, what's that? You blast it with a cannon? I don't, what do you mean by that? Okay. The, the term canon means read, like sit down and read the book. It was canonized. The, 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 the church had been through all the other ancient writings and went, no, we don't want to read that. And no, that shouldn't be read. No, that, that, that's a good book, but it's not, not doctrine. It's not correct. And they had compiled the red books of the scripture and literally bound them together. These 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. This is what we need to study in order to see these things accomplished in our lives. Right? You want to read those other books? You want to read ancient writings of poetry way outside the scripture? Go right ahead and do that. But you shouldn't pick them up with the same weight of authority and think, oh, the writings of Aristotle. Oh, i got to find out what's in here. What is it that Plato had to say? Oh, my goodness, this is so wise. No, no, this is what you need right here. And the church agreed upon that, that this is what to be studied. I want to read it to you again. In contrast to all the other garbage, he's admonishing Timothy to dive into digesting the word of God that he was trained in from his youth that's going to teach him about Jesus Christ, and these are the things that are going to be accomplished in his life again. Correct doctrine, proper reproof, right? Correction for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a pretty simple summary of what you would want to see accomplished in your life. That, that's the stuff you would want your life made up right there. You know, all the other things that, you know, might be okay or, you know, way down on the other spectrum of might be terrible. The, the word of God isn't going to do those other things. It's going to do the good and the right and the proper thing in you for what? Doing good works. Doing good works for yourself. Doing the things that are good for you. Doing the good things for your spouse. Doing the good things for your family, your children, for your friends, for the world around you. If you walk through your life as this is my guiding course, this is what works in me, you're going to get to the end of your life and not only are you going to be able to say, that was a good life. The people that experience you are going to say the same thing. That was a good person. 
They lived a good life. They did good for me. They did good for the world around them. The world, <laughs> the world around us needs people like this that will take this instruction from Paul and apply it to their own lives. I just, again, I'll close with that thought, you guys. You read the headlines, and the behavior of the world is just so childish that you're left going, really? This is, <laughs> just, this is where we're at? You know, violence on the part of a police officer once again results in someone's death. So the logical answer is we would go out and bust into every store and steal everything we could and burn everything else to the ground. That, that's nothing more than an excuse right, for, for childish people to behave in immature ways. You've probably had the unfortunate experience in life of being around people like that. Who they, they just want to misbehave. And boy, uh, you give them the opportunity and they immediately know. Maybe you never went to public school and experienced having a substitute teacher. Right? No reason for the bad kids to misbehave other than oh, substitute teacher and lose the mind. Right? Substitute teacher wasn't any worse. Classroom wasn't being run any less. Just, they recognized a weak moment and took advantage. That's how immature our culture is right now. Our culture needs godly people who have the power of God working in their lives to go out into the world and encourage them to come follow the Lord with their lives. The world needs to be filled with ambassadors such as ourselves in every walk of life. That, that we would be evangelizing the world and bringing them to Christ. Hear the encouragement of Paul and grab a hold of, of where you are in time and what it is that the Lord would have you to do. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for your word, for your work in our lives, and we ask that you would work through us, Lord. We, we raise our hands and we, we ask and we submit and, and we volunteer ourselves to suffer, to suffer for being godly, to suffer for following you. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will done in us and through us and by us, Lord. Use us as your children. Use us as your ambassadors, Lord. Build your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.